This is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Making his way to the podcasting ring. Hailing from the heart of Cajun country. It's me. It's me. It's the world famous CD. Let's ring the bell and get this party started off right. And welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Appreciate you listening in, however you're doing so. Be it through 1037thegame.com, the free 1037thegame mobile app, and all the great podcast gimmicks that we got out there to listen to us all over the place. But we got to get down to brass tacks here with the three count where we break down all the great things that have happened over the last week of pro wrestling that, did, that didn't happen inside of the 20 by 20 squared circle. And we start things off with probably one of the biggest stories of the week with Zelina Vega returning to WWE. Apparently there's some rumor in your window about it because it was coming from Fightful Select was the first to report this saying that Zelina Vega was at the performance center on May 13th. And they were told it wasn't just a visit as she was being filmed for some reason there, maybe fighting with my family part two. I don't know, but remember that Zelina left in November after she was fired for not following the third party policies. What the context of this appearance is at the Performance Center, nobody really knows. But they mentioned the working plan is for her to return to the company not too far down the road, which would be great. I think having somebody like Zelina Vega back in the fold would be absolutely tremendous. Now, some of what kind of role they have for is it as a manager or something else? I think there's got to be something there for, but I think more importantly, I think this is a step towards maybe the WWE finally fixing some of the issues that they had from a couple months ago with the third party, where they can kind of reach an agreement, reach a middle ground with her, and in turn the rest of the WWE roster, and kind of make sure this thing works. Because I feel like that's something that a lot of people were upset about, and justifiably so, but being able to fix that issue long-term is going to be absolutely massive for the future of the WWE. Meanwhile, Ring of Honor, they have been doing shows for a good while, in the bubble, no fans, no Thunderdome, no nothing. It's been like bare bones, but they're bringing back fans for the first time in about a year and a half. They're bringing back fans for their best in the world pay-per-view that will be coming up on July 11th, a Sunday night at that. Really weird to see a non-WWE or now AEW pay-per-view be on a Sunday, especially with the Ring of Honor. They've always been more of a Friday or Saturday variety, but... More power to them for being able to put this together. And it'll be at the previously known UMBC Event Center. Now it's the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Arena again on July 11, 2021. And by the way, that's largely where all of Ring of Honor's tapings have been over the last, let's say, eight months. Because I'm trying to remember when they started back up with the Pure Tournament. That had to have been like around August or so, August or September. I have to go back in the archives and remember which episode. I actually brought up the Pure Tournament, and I watched the first episode, and I gave my thoughts on it. But I've been enjoying what I've seen with Ring of Honor's product. If you like more of the sports-based stuff, it's that, and MLW have it down to a science. Now, of course, MLW is drifting more into Lucha Underground type stuff, and I love that kind of stuff, too. But if you want more of just the straight-up stuff in the 20 by 20 squared circle, this is where it's at. And, of course, they're going to be following, you know, different things like limited capacity, pod seating is going to be implemented 
to ensure proper social distancing of six feet between each group of ticket holders and temperatures will be taken upon entry and masks will be required to be worn by all attendees during the event. I'm sure Flip Gordon will not be happy about that, not one bit, because we all know him and his anti-mask takes, just not necessarily the best in the world. But we also have some big news about New Japan Pro Wrestling is they are returning to live shows on May 22nd after they canceled a lot of events about a couple weeks ago. Namely, you know, they had the COVID outbreak that affected Pro Wrestling Dontaku where they had to basically scrap the show in. I'm a, trying to think of a, who is it? El Fantasmo. They had to kind of take that out to the woodshed and shoot it. Because they couldn't get that done, and they had to kind of throw that out, and they threw out a lot of different shows, the Wrestle Grand Slam event, but they're going to be back doing live events in the build-up to Dominion, which will be in June. It's going to start on May 22nd, which is about four days from right now, in Nagoya, Japan, at the Nagoya Congress Center Event Hall. Then they'll be 24th, 25th, and 26th. They'll have shows taking place in Korukan Hall. Of course, it's going back. So we talked about it a little bit last week on the podcast is on May 5th and 9th, they had positive COVID-19 tests among the New Japan roster that caused a great deal of concern. And infected wrestlers had all continued to display minor or no symptoms and have isolated and received appropriate medical treatment. And the wrestlers who had contact with the infected or had any reason to be concerned have also independently isolated and taken relevant measures. And they also kind of go into a little bit of detail about how they handle this in terms of trying to avoid an outbreak as much as possible. And it's an interesting breakdown here because they actually have, you know, real diligent screening for New Japan Pro Wrestling and with consultation with medical professionals and training staff, including on any after effects that may arise from a lengthy period of isolation. And I believe they also would have, you know, regular screening before events and daily temperature and blood oxygen saturation checks, all with actually having them have these like individualized meal packages that, oh, hey, you get this one, you get this one, you get this one. And you don't have any that are, like, you have them all pre-made, and it's each, like, sealed, hermetically sealed and everything. It's wild to watch. But I absolutely have to say, big credit for, to them for kind of bouncing back and be able to get shows back on the road. Because, again, I don't think New Japan wants to have, like, several shows canceled over the course of, like, like months again, especially as we get closer to the Olympics Will it happen or won't it? I sure hope it happens, but if it does, then that means New Japan is going to have to be on hiatus for a little bit on top of that. And then you'll have Best of Super Juniors and G1. I believe those will be more in September and October as opposed to Best of Super Juniors, which actually should be like on a typical year schedule, I think would be starting up right after Dominion. I believe I've seen some start before, but I know for the most part they'll usually go more after Dominion, they'll do the big shows, and then Best of Super Juniors. Then it's G1, and then not too long after that, probably October, you've got World Tag League. But they have to kind of make some adjustments because of the Olympics being in Japan this year. I'm interested to see how it's all going to go down, especially to see how, going forward, the state of the, w, the New Japan Pro Wrestling kind of setup and how this is going to continue and maintaining their like strict COVID nineteen guidelines, and I'm surprised. You know, maybe I don't. I think in Japan it's not as much like the vaccine 
don't think there's enough of the vaccine from what I've been able to kind of surmise in all this. So I'm sure that's a big reason why we're continuing to see outbreaks in Japan, more importantly amongst the New Japan roster. Hopefully they are doing well, and more importantly, they're able to recover quickly because from what I've been able to hear from people who have had COVID, it's not great. And I had the fact that when you have somebody who performs at a high level like pro wrestlers do, that takes a lot out of you. I remember see, hearing a lot about Matt Jackson talking about his experience with COVID. Obviously, Tommy Dreamer recently had COVID as well, and his was a whole like mess. He felt like he was about to die, and he was literally, like at some points, he felt like he was being caught, being set on like fire. And this is a guy that has literally done that before in his career. He's feeling that way from COVID-19. It's like you can imagine how much it would like hurt a normal person having that kind of like virus. It's insane, but hopefully we're starting to get past it. More importantly, it looks like we're going to be a step in the right direction towards live events happening, especially stateside. Rumor in your window is possibly the first WWE show is going to be Money in the Bank. They moved Hell in a Cell, which we'll talk about in a little bit. They moved that up to June 20th, so presumably Money in the Bank could be the first live event, and that'll be in July. Definitely intrigued right there. Before we kind of get into WrestleMania Backlash, we're going to add one more to the three count because it's well-deserved. We need to bring it up. New Jack passed away at the age of 58 on Friday. Right when I saw the news, in fact, I just got done with our afternoon programming that you can hear right here on 103.7 The Game Acadia on a sports station. And I just got so sad when I was like, New Jack passed away at the age of 58 due to a heart attack. I was blown away because like, I thought it was like, no way that's true. No way. And then it was. I got, I got really just full-blown upset, sad. I was like, then I wound up just watching a bunch of New Jack clips because I wasn't like a huge ECW guy or ECW kid. Because when that was going on, I mean, whenever it ended, I was 12 years old. So I didn't see a whole lot of, like, peak ECW. And, you know, again, living in Louisiana where you're not able to get ECW readily available. I didn't know who, who of all the people are that are doing the tape trading back in the day. All that stuff. So I missed out on that entire thing. Luckily, you know, with the network and whatnot, I've been able to keep track and watch a lot of that stuff. But it just sucks to see that. New Jack, without a doubt. He is a complete madman and a maniac. And, you know, watching the dark side of the ring really sheds some light on what kind of character he is and what kind of person he is. But, damn, if it was entertaining as all get out to see him and his character play out. I mean, TNA somehow, some way managed to make him a comic relief character with Shark Boy. And that was it, probably the most entertaining thing I've ever seen him do. Just amazing stuff. Rest in peace, New Jack, and I, I wish I could say more, but I think Paul Heyman on Talking Smack, which you haven't seen that promo yet, go check it out. He said he, he said it better than anybody else could. You know, he thought maybe when New Jack did pass away, he'd probably like fake his own death and then sign autographs just to make sure he'd get people. But nope, this is not a rib. This is a real thing. And thoughts and prayers to. New Jack, Jerome Young's family. All right, let's get into WrestleMania Backlash. Some overall thoughts on this show. We'll start off with the non-title match, Sheamus versus Ricochet. 
And I was surprised because it felt like, you know, after what they did at WrestleMania where they didn't have a pre-show match, just had a pre-show where they were all just talking about what was going on. I thought maybe that was going to be the case going forward. But thankfully, I decided to tune into the pre-show just to see what was going on and more importantly to see if they were actually going to go ahead and actually have a kickoff show match. Now that we're not in WrestleMania season, you didn't have WrestleMania to be two nights because two nights of pre-show just wouldn't necessarily have been great, but it is what it is. That said... They started off with Sheamus versus Ricochet. Sheamus came out to proclaim his open challenge, non-title, of course, because why the hell not? And it starts off with Ricochet. It looked like he just walked in off the street with his whole you know, hood, pants, and a belt. It was like, why is he doing this? It's a little weird. I think he could have probably dressed a little bit more like he normally does, but I understand he's going through a new change in the middle of the feud with Ali, which is insane. The thing about they're doing that feud while nobody's really watching because that's on main event. Not even I'm watching it, but I know about it because I saw a promo a few weeks ago. That really showed why I think Ricochet's so underrated in my book. But it's a really solid match right out of the gate. Ricochet opens up big drop kick into the corner. They get going for a little bit. Then I lose connection on Peacock. Again, I was mentioning this on Twitter. I did not have a single solitary issue. I think I had one moment towards the end of the Rhea Ripley match against Asuka, where I kind of had technical difficulties, had issues. I lost the feed, had to go back into Peacock and get back into it. And thankfully, they have they don't have an option to go and start from the beginning or just, just straight start from the beginning, just resumes as is. So I was able to see the finish for the match, but it just was, like, weird. But this go-round, I had at least two or three instances where the feed froze, buffered like crazy, and I've got really solid internet speeds. I actually, in fact, checked it whenever I had the issues, and I was getting about like 40, 50 up and down. Like, I should be able to stream HD video very, very well with 40, 50 up and down. I was like, what the hell is going on? And then I close it out, reopen it up in the, on the PS4 app. Maybe I just need to go get a Roku. I think that's what this is telling me. That being said, this was a really fine match. It started off, you know, they got some stuff going. Sheamus took over, started hitting him with the beats of the Bowery. Ricochet fought back, got some really good licks on the United States champion. Sheamus tried the reverse Alabama slam, but Rick, Pretty Rick gets out of it, and it's a nice springboard clothesline, a pair of moonsaults for a two count. Then we get to a really great spot where Ricochet hits the springboard 450. It looks so smooth, and I was really surprised because they took their time setting up the springboard 450. I'm surprised we didn't get Sheamus with the knees up. But this was for a two count. Ricochet a little bit later sets up for the 6.30. But Sheamus moves out of the way. Ricochet dodges the bro kick, gets a roll up on Sheamus. But Sheamus then gets out of that and KOs Ricochet with a brutal looking knee. It wasn't quite like a V trigger, but it almost looked like a half cocked, you know, bro kick. And that was a really solid ending to the match. But then comes kind of the, the post match schmoz with Ricochet no selling that really brutal-looking knee, and then just dropkicks Sheamus out of the ring and then takes his hat and jacket and celebrates before he runs out because Sheamus is going to try and whip his tail end for taking his hat and his jacket. So maybe we got a little bit of a feud going between those two. Honestly, I think it would have been better just to have him get KO'd, and he goes away for a little bit. Back to main event, he goes. This is a two-links of Boudet match. Really good stuff. But it was very like much a short get your ish in because we got the main car coming up in just a little bit. And speaking of the main car, we'll start off with the Raw Women's Championship match. 
And it's Charlotte Flair, Asuka, Rhea Ripley. One of two triple threat matches on the card, which I'm not a huge fan of, but I'm also not a huge fan of the fact that you got it being a triple threat with Charlotte Flair involved in the build to this. It made me think, are they already denigrating the entirety of Rhea Ripley's title reign just by this feud alone? Because the way they built it, the video package they had hyping into the this opening contest had a lot to do with the fact you had Charlotte put over as the, you know, the opportunity, not the opportunity to win the Raw Women's Championship. She's, she, you should be so honored to face off against the Raw Women's Champion. Or the Raw Women's Champion should have the honor to face Charlotte Flair, however they want to put it, and it was so frustrating to me. And, yes, you had the, yeah, the suspension that lasted a week, but, you know, at this point, I'm kind of numb to, like, these plot holes in wrestling because – Let's be honest, the storytelling and, and the plot's been lost in WWE for a long, long time. And it was a like, okay, I mean, this is weird. I don't understand why we're going to get this match, like a triple threat match, let alone a one-on-one would have been fine, I think. A one-on-one with Charlotte and Ripley would have been fine. You didn't need to have Asuka involved in it. Asuka, Rhea Ripley would have been fine, too. Then you save Charlotte Flair for down the road. You give it some time rather than just go ahead and, and shoehorn in this a couple weeks before the pay-per-view. And Charlotte Flair comes out, and at first I thought, you know, why is she having, like, like these spots all over her attire? Now, of, of course, people were saying it was Cruella DeVille-inspired gear, which I can get behind. Don't get me wrong. I think it's perfectly fine. It was really good. But why did it look like cow spots on her attire? And that's not meant to be sexist saying cow, but it was like, oh, hey, this looked, at first glance, but when you zoom in and whenever they cut to more of a focus shot on Charlotte, you start to realize, hey, this isn't just, you know, spots for the sake of spots. This actually made a lot of sense in terms of the story being told. Match is really good here. To start, a really solid opener. Starts off with a standoff. Charlotte walks out the ring. Asuka and Rhea get the jump on her, but Charlotte takes down Ripley with a nice lariat. Asuka returns to the ring. It was kind of just that back-and-forth sequence. These two... These three were just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it was just in and out of the ring. Really quick stuff here. But at certain points, it wasn't truly like silky smooth. At certain points, there was a spot where it looked like things were performed at half speed, a little bit more focus on the facial expressions of Ripley. Which, by the way, she's done a really good job of the facial expressions. Now, I'm just wondering, is she a heel or is she a babyface? That's the real question I think all of us who watch the WWE have been wondering where are they leaning with her? Because we like her as a babyface, And I think the fact they're going to eventually pair her up with Charlotte Flair, Charlotte is a natural heel. Why are you going to try and flip things over and have Rhea be the heel in this angle? I, I just don't see, I can't root for Charlotte Flair to begin with, but this was absolutely ridiculous and really solid stuff. And they get Charlotte, pointing to herself, screaming 14 time, And, I, again, she screamed that to Rhea Ripley. So the feud, the big feud, is going to be eventually between these two. But can you have a heel versus heel? Or is this going to be, you know, somehow, some way, Ripley becomes full heel and you have a double turn somewhere along the line? I just, I don't know where this end game is in all this. And I think WWE doesn't even know because sometimes they're creative. This completely goes out of whack in some of this stuff. And it felt like, again, this match was running at certain points where it slowed down, where it could have probably been a little bit faster. It felt like, you know, 
where they were dragging when they should be rushing to spots. And it, they just had moments where it was like, it took me out of it for a minute. Oscar had a really good sequence at one point, taking out the other combatants, but Charlotte stopped her momentum, like basically forearming her down in, down to the outside, and then hit the moonsault that we see every single pay-per-view, every single triple threat match she's ever been in. She does it. And she needs to stop doing it because it's like, it's like she over-rotates a little bit on the spot. She hits it and then lands on her feet, then falls and takes a back bump. Like It's way too much going on with that, and nobody ever really catches her. It's a spot that I feel like works better when you have like complete cooperation. But when she hit this, she basically only hit, them, hit both of them with her arms. It looked like she just landed damn near face first. And it's, it's not a great look. I understand it looks like it's safe. But you have a moment where somebody doesn't catch you or you land a little bit awkward on your leg, and boom, you could very well have a torn ACL and you're out for several months. It just feels like it's a little unsafe, especially to do every single month on end. So we get to all three women. They're back in the ring, and they are they do a triple down after a you know double superplex. They're both, all three of them are completely blown up at this point, and they start laying into each other with strikes on their knees. Then they get up, and they start just waiting on each other. Flair eventually hits Rhea and Asuka both with a double natural selection. That gets a two-count. She actually tries pinning both of them, but it was one of those spots. It's not like the Roman Reigns, Edge, Daniel Bryan double pin where it actually worked. This is, oh, hey, Charlotte just basically lying on top of both of them. That's never going to work as a pinfall. It's never going to work as a finish. Why even try and do that? Then she tries for the moonsault in the ring, lands on her feet, gets knocked out of the ring by Asuka. Rhea goes for the riptide on Asuka, but Flair breaks it up. After Asuka just basically tries to avoid it forever, Asuka gets the Asuka lock on Charlotte. Charlotte counters, goes for the figure eight. Asuka gets out of it right away. Rhea hits the riptide on Asuka. She retains the Raw Women's title. A very fast-paced finish and a really solid opener. I'm giving this a three and a half links of Buddha out of five. Again, that's our star rating system we have for the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 103.7 Games exclusive pro wrestling podcast. And now we're going to get to the SmackDown Tag Team Championship match. And it's Rey Mysterio and Dominic Mysterio was scheduled to be his tag team partner taking on the Dirty Dogs of Dolph Ziggler and Robert Roode. And earlier during the kickoff show, Dolph and Roode took Dominic out backstage and basically threw what looked to be like Basically some, I can't think of the actual wording off top. It was a mess. Whatever you saw, the thing thrown on top of him, because it looked like it didn't hurt that much. I mean, they flipped over with ease, and then you saw Jamie Newell couldn't pick it up. It's like, come on now. You're really going to try and sell that as a move and as a way to like write off somebody? And they go backstage, and Dominic's getting checked out, and Ravis here decides to go alone. And, again, we've seen this story being told a million times, and they picked the right guys to be in that role. Ziggler and Rude look like a great tag team. It's like it's one of those odd couple tag teams that somehow WWE is able to do a billion times. Raider RKO, Sheamus and Cesaro, The Bar. And they actually turn them into legitimate teams. They turn them into legitimate teams where they put together some really solid double teams, really solid spots throughout. And again, it actually works. And more importantly, one thing that I was absolutely loving about this match was the fact that you had Rey Mysterio, the ultimate underdog in this situation. So it's easily, oh, hey, you're going to go ahead and root for him. Even if you know, oh, hey, the end result is going to be Rey Mysterio winning the match at the end 
you knew that was going to be the guy because it's all about selling that whole angle. And, you know, you could have done it a completely opposite way and have Dominic Mysterio come back, but they still lose because Ziggler and Rude take him out and injure him again. But I like the way they did it, the way they paced it out. Had Dominic Mysterio come out about like halfway through, yeah, the, the tease of the comeback and the hot tag. And Dominic comes out, and this is something I, I just have to say. Dominic's hot tag, and I understand he was injured, so he was selling the injuries. I would have loved for him to be basically, like, the second he gets that tag, is that adrenaline pumping, and he jumps over the rope, hits a really good spot, and starts just taking out everybody, house of fire. But that's not what we got. We saw him kind of get things going. Then he fell apart. Rey Mysterio gets a hot tag. By the way, Rey Mysterio was out there dressed like the Batman. I'm talking like Adam West Batman. And it was like, okay, why is he doing this? And I was like, oh, yeah, this is Rey Mysterio we're talking about. He always does this kind of stuff. But it was all about Rey Mysterio getting that comeback, getting that finish, hitting the 619. It was a really weird position, too, where it felt almost forced, where you had Rey Mysterio hitting the 619 near the corner turnbuckle, which could have been a little bit more dangerous. But thankfully, Rey Mysterio is able to always pull that off really well. And then he tagged in Dominic, who hit the frog splash. And we have new tag team champions and the Mysterio's first ever father-son tag team championships uh, champions i should say excuse me first ever smackdown tag team champions really great stuff here the match was fine match in terms of the 20 by 20 squared circle story being told it was perfectly fine but the story was really good and i was more rooting for that than anything so i think this gives it a boost up a little bit it probably would have been a two and a half links to booty match but i give it an extra one because the story was told was really good really solid from start to finish and they ended with a really good heartfelt moment. I would have loved to have seen it more on a Father's Day, maybe. That would have been really cool, too. But seeing Ray and Dominic do this was so cool. So it gives, I'm giving it three and a half links of Boudin. Now we get to the abomination of all abominations. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the first one that will go below two links of Boudin. I'll go out, out on Front Street and say this gets one link of Boudin. And I probably threw up another one. Because this. this was one of the worst matches I've seen all year. Yes, I could say, you know, the Alexa Bliss-Orton match was a mess and probably would be the worst match of the year. But at the same time, it wasn't more, it wasn't a match, it was a spectacle. It was an angle, like, like, like what we see when we talk about Mankind versus The Undertaker, King of the Ring 98. It was more about the angle and the spectacle of that spot. So we get a Lumberjack match between The Miz and Damian Priest, but the Lumberjacks are zombies. All to promote Army of the Dead, a movie that I'm never going to watch. Mind you, that was before the actual show began. Because I sat watching this show, and I couldn't help but to wonder, what is going on here? What are they doing to have this be the main event, or one of the card matches on the main card, be a tie-in for a movie. Now, yes, they did kind of tease that during the Raw Go Home show, saying that Damian Priest wanted to have whoever, you know, alien zombies, whatever. You didn't need to do it for this. I said it to somebody off air, and I'm I'm thinking this is absolutely what should have been done. You should have done this with the 24-7 title and have a gimmick and an angle revolving around that. That would have probably been the better thing to do. 
I wasn't a huge fan of it. And I just sat there like, why are we doing this? And it's promoting a damn movie. It's not to promote, you know, oh, hey, we're going to go ahead and have this great, you know, match between two guys and one guy's on the way up, the other guy in the Miz, he'll never really truly be hurt by a loss. Now, yes, in terms of when wrestling matters, in terms of wins and losses, any wrestler can be hurt by wins or losses, but WWE does not care about that. The Miz could lose and then go ahead and win the WWE title for a third time, but that's not what's going to happen because apparently he tore his ACL during the match, and he'll be out for potentially six months to a year. Nobody, if it's a partially torn or fully torn, because if it's fully, could be a year. If it's partial, he could be probably back in, an, in at most six months. But again, think about that. The Miz has never been injured before because he's wrestled a relatively speaking safe style. He considers himself the king of safe style, and I agree with that statement. But the one time he gets injured, it's in probably the biggest abomination of the year. And you don't even have a follow-through. You had them all get eaten by zombies in the finish. Miz and Morrison got eaten by zombies. The next night, Morrison comes out and smells like a rose. Looks like he's just fine. Even after the zombies attacked him, not once, but twice. Come on, man. I, and then you also had the fact that whenever they're outside the ring, the Lumberjacks were going after him, and the face and the heel were both teaming up like it's a buddy comedy and beating up on the zombies. It was so aggravating. Now, I'm not going to go into a complete tirade like I'm a Dave LaGreca did of Busted Open because, honestly, I don't have the time or the energy to really dot, really get angry about it. I was more just like, do we really just get zombies? It's more like passive-aggressive, like, what the bleep did you just do? Why is this a thing? What in the world are you doing putting this thing together? And why do we have to book this to promote a damn movie? On Raw Monday, John Morrison was fine. And it's like, but The Miz is the one that came out the worst for it because he got injured. And they had to write him off one way or another. And hopefully we get to see The Miz come back down the road. Not as a zombie. Please don't have him come back as a zombie because we don't need that angle to be happening. This isn't SmackDown versus Raw, I believe, 2009, when you did a whole angle where Undertaker turned Santino into a zombie. I don't need to see that ever again. So, again, this is a one-league boot match. I'm not even going to talk about the match itself because I don't remember anything of it. I just remember zombies existing. And I was like, why did we do this? Why did we have to make this a match that promotes a movie? Like, imagine, let's say, six months, let's say, like, two months from now, Money in the Bank or whatever. Whatever the like, Hell, you do Hell in a Cell and you have, like, a match and the sponsor's Black Widow. Let's just throw a hypothetical out there because that's a movie that's coming out in July. And you have Black Widow being one of the big sponsors. Are you going to have a match related to Black Widow? You have somebody dyeing their hair red or something? Like, I don't... I, Scarlet Bordeaux has a match, and it's sponsored by Black Widow. Is that is that what our next step is going to be? It's frustrating. And I was glad that we got a palate cleanser in the SmackDown Women's Championship match. Bailey taking on Bianca Belair. B- Belair in her first pay-per-view title defense. Hopefully we don't see her have the Sasha curse on her after beating Sasha at WrestleMania. Thankfully, that wasn't the case. Really solid match here. And one of the big notes that I had written down was Bailey shaving Bianca's name in her hair. And apparently this is a thing that's been going on. I didn't necessarily watch as much SmackDown because sometimes my schedule doesn't necessarily link up. And Friday nights are kind of like a, a dead spot for me because I'm basically working on a bunch of other stuff on Friday nights. And then Friday night, we see... 
Bailey versus Bianca Belair square off on Sunday. But apparently she saves her your opponent's name in her hair, which is a really cool gimmick, don't get me wrong, but it also reminded me of Max Keeble's big move, the bully Troy McGinty, when he called out his next victim, always had the name of the victim written on his shirt. By the way, that's a really good movie, and if you haven't checked it out yet or you don't remember it, go rewatch it. It's it's well worth your time. It still holds up as a pretty decent movie. And the fact you got Josh Peck in, I think that definitely gives it some bonus points. Shout out to him. But it was a really good match here, and I like the fact that they had a finish with an out. Because it's not like the main event where it was a one-on-one match or the two triple threat matches. You have an out now for somebody to have a rematch at the next pay-per-view. Because now this feud is going to progress another month. And they did a great job with this, where they had Bianca look like she used her hair for leverage in the pin to retain the Raw, the SmackDown Women's title, so maybe we see Bianca and Bailey at Hell in a Cell. Really good match and a great palate cleanser. I'm giving it three and a half links of Boudin. Really solid storytelling and really good. The, the in-ring work was, bar none, probably one of the best of the night. Really good stuff here. And the, and the story being told with the chicken bleep heel trying to use the hair to her advantage and then it kind of gets turned back on her was really good too. Now we get to the WWE Championship match, the semi-main. Drew McIntyre, Braun Strowman, Bobby Lashley. This was exactly what you'd expect from these three guys. Big boys slapping meat, bumping meat, everything in between, and this ruled. So many cool spots here throughout. In fact, Strowman early on hit a dive off the apron where he basically tucked his chin. and it looked like he, If he had just been a little bit more overzealous or over eager, he could have over, like basically gone a little bit too fast and probably bump on his head and would have been out for a good bit. But he managed to come away relatively unscathed. And this was a full-blown Pier 6 brawl from beginning to end. It reminded me a lot of the Brock, Braun, Kane triple threat. And, of course, the, it's triple threats always usually have some sort of finish, especially over the last decade or so. The way WWE's been booking these is by having a... One babyface hit their finisher on the other guy, and then the heel swipes in, hits his finisher on that same guy, or just throws that guy out and gets the pin and the win. This is very similar. Drew McIntyre hit the Claymore, and then Lashley threw him out, then hit the spear on Braun Strowman to get the win. After being thrown through the electric like LED board, yes, you're right, the LED board that they mentioned earlier, the last time he went through that, he was gone for a couple weeks. Yes, you heard me right. Lashley somehow no-sold one of the most devastating spots in the WWE. I was like, okay. I'm still giving it four stars. A really solid match, and I was into it from start to finish. So it gets a four links of Boudin type of match for me. Now we get to the main event. Match of the night, bar none. Cesaro Roman Reigns. And this is something I kind of have observed, but never said. Roman Reigns is the new Triple H. Not because of the fact it's like a reign of terror type thing. No, because Roman Reigns is wrestling a similar style where it's a slow, methodical match, especially early on, conserving the energy. And then like early on, Cesaro injures his arm. Maybe it was shoot. Maybe it was work. I don't know. But that played into a probably 30% of the match. And that's what I'm missing from my wrestling these days, where you're seeing guys... Like the story being told 
is really good start to finish, and you see a lot of different moves and, and bumps. Really good stuff from these guys. And I think yeah, the entire time, Cesaro trying to rally, not using the other arm, couldn't use the arm for the for the neutralizer, then wound up just going ahead and trying to hit the sharpshooter a couple times, couldn't get it done. Transitioned the sharpshooter into the crossface, which is a really good spot. And then it ends with the most surprising thing of the night. Roman Reigns wins clean after the guillotine. One, two, three, that's it. Then you got Jey Uso coming out, giving him his lay that he was awarded after beating Jay in Hell in a Cell. So now he gets that. Then Jey Uso starts beating down on Cesaro, beats him up. And then we get it fit. Then we get Seth Rollins coming out there. It's like, who's next is going to come out to beat him up? But Seth Rollins just beats the tar out of him, and it ends with Rollins hooking Cesaro's arm into the chair and then throws it straight into the post. Basically, look like it, I would say it's not like the fullest extent of pilmanizing, but pretty much pilmanized his arm. And I was like, this was a really solid match. And the post-match made me realize, I think we're not going to see him for a good while. That said, really good match. I'm giving this four and a half links of Buddha. Not a five, not a five link of Buddha match. Because I've been giving those out a lot lately, especially to main events, but this was not one of those. Overall, really solid card that was marred by a main event that I think, with all due respect, should have never happened, or at least shouldn't have been booked the way that it was. With WrestleMania Backlash in the rearview mirror, we'll get into UFC 262 next. Now, we normally talk AEW, Dynamite, and NXT, but I want to save those for next week's podcast because there's a lot of things going on with AEW, especially with them moving the show, which, by the way, we didn't get to in the three count. I'll go ahead and make that announcement right now. AEW is moving their show to TBS in January of 2022. And apparently they're going to also, you know, have their presence be added with another show, a third hour of high-octane wrestling for AEW called AEW Rampage. They'll air Friday nights at 10 o'clock Eastern time, 9 o'clock our time. And then both of those programs will move over to TBS in 2022. And more importantly, TNT will also announce four brand-new pro wrestling specials annually. Continuing to garner and grow AEW's audience until the move to TBS in 2022. So that's interesting. I think it also sets up for the move where AEW is going to be moving once the TBS, TNT and NHL deal goes through. It felt inevitable, but now we're getting to see this actually happen. And I'm okay with it because I think it's perfectly fine because you keep AEW on Wednesday nights, you move it over to TNT, TBS, which honestly, what else were they airing on Wednesday nights? Were they airing, you know, the 50,000th time of Big Bang Theory? They run those, like, marathons every single night. You could take one night out of the week. So I think that's perfectly fine. And they're also going to add a lot more stuff. I know they, I think they're also going to have, like, Tuesday night baseball on TBS. So TNT and TBS are going to be the place to be, I think, in the next couple of years to enjoy some great sports as well as sports entertainment. So I think this is great. And the fact that you have a chance to put together these super cards, 
That way you don't have to blow your wad every single week or every month with these quarterly specials. And I'm going to go ahead and assume and kind of almost mock draft this, if you will, about what the four quarterly specials are going to be. That'll be in conjunction with the big four. So I'm assuming you'll have one be more, I think, March. I'm going to assume I'd say March, and that'd be your Beach Break show. You'd have Beach Break, and then you'd have Fighter Fest, I think would be more of your July show. Fighting for the Fallen is a debatable one, because you'd have that, and then you have, let's say, October. You figure out a way, not because Halloween Havoc's taken, you figure out what you can do with that. Winter is Coming would be your last show of the year. Would be one of your last shows of the year, would be in December, to fill that fourth quarter void. That's kind of how I see it. You get to have these on non-adjacent, you know, AEW pay-per-view months because Revolution will always be in February, double or nothing in in May. Then you'll have full gear in November and then all out in September. So you need to try and schedule these quarterly specials outside that. And I'm sure AEW, now that they're seemingly going to move their pay-per-views to Sunday, I think they're going to start having these quarterly events not be in conjunction with anything else. They just have it on Saturdays. Now, of course, I know TNT usually has the NBA on Sat. They have the NBA on Saturdays, but I think you can wind up booking it to where, hey, we want to have this show, and I think there's a way to go around it. Who's to say? You know, they could do a TNT show on like a night on a non NHL or whatever. But I think 2022 is going to be a lot of fun to see especially in the month of March when you add in March Madness, all the other stuff that they're going to have going on. This all coming because of a lot of changes. The mega mega merger with TNT, excuse me, AT&T, not TNT, listen to me, is going to be something interesting to keep an eye on. But we'll kind of push that over. We'll, We'll put a pin in that. We'll talk about it probably a lot more in the next podcast, along with a preview of Double or Nothing 2021. They are supposed to announce the entire card on tonight's broadcast, of course, we're taping this on a special day, May 19th. But let's get into UFC 262, a really solid main card. The other card was pretty fun, too. Mind you, saw a guy have his arm broken in the, I believe it was the first round. That was just brutal looking as hell. And when you heard the snap, I damn near lost my dinner. But we're going to get to the main card. Edson Barboza, Shane Bargos, and this was a prime example of Styles making fights. You had the boxer taking on a kickboxer. Really, Barboza early on, I think he took control with some leg kicks, but Bargos gets the 10-9 lead in my card because the final 90 seconds, he took over and staggered him with a quick punch. Didn't matter, though. Barboza knocked out Bargos pretty quickly with a well-placed right in the third round, and he basically staggered back like it was a cartoon. Like You could put the cartoon sound effects of a guy you know, about to run, and he was just staggering back and fell all the way back to the cage, back of the head, hit, it was over. Really solid opener here. I almost thought this was going to go to decision, and I probably would have wound up going more Barboza by decision, but that second round was very, very close. Then we get to Caitlin Drukagan, and this was a really solid match. It was boring to begin with. The first mat, the first part of this match was very like boring. I'd go Vivian. She got the 10-9. I had her, in fact, winning the fight. I was blown away the fact they actually gave her the win. 29-28, 29-28, 30-27. Third judge 
especially was a head scratcher because I felt like this was a, like very much competitive because I think Aruro took two out of took three all three rounds in my book, but at the same time it was very very close to where you could tell there was nothing that truly sealed the deal. I think second round was all Vivian. She had a really solid ground game here. She actually like it looked like Chukagan tapped. But it looked like, at the most part, she was just giving her and Nikki, basically kind of pinching, saying, hey, I'm okay, or was trying to grab her hand, one of the two. And I just sat there. I was like, what is going on? And I'm like, when they said that, it's like, no, they would have called that because they know, they can tell when things aren't going great. They can usually call, they have the discretion to call the fight whenever you notice something. Like that. You should be able to see and be able to tell outright that that person is tapping. So more credit to the officials for letting that fight get to the end of the road but I was really surprised that Chukagan wound up winning this. She was underneath for a good bit of the fight, and I can give her credit. She'll be next in line for a title fight moving up in the rankings. Was a weak fight on the main card for the most part. More blown away at the way the match did finish. Now we're going to get to Matt Schnell, Rogero Bontorin. I'm probably mispronouncing that name, but Schnell actually a he built himself from Houston, Texas for the cheap pop, but apparently he's from Streetport. And this is a like really good fight at certain points, but it was overall boring. Bontorin just dominated that first round, but Schnell rallied late in the first round. That's a big reason why I wound up going more ten nine here on my scorecard. And then Schnell put together good combinations and had me leaning towards him ten nine in round two. So my card wound up being twenty nine twenty eight again. And then the fans hated this fight. Hated this fight so much. And I can definitely understand. Bontorin won the fight for me, and he won the fight actually. The judge's scorecard was going 30 27, 30 27, 29 28. So at least one person agreed with me with a 29 28 kind of ruling. And usually for the most part, I'll go 10 9 unless it's like clear dominance on the behalf of somebody. Because I guarantee you, you can tell. When a fight is extremely one-sided, I, I, they had 261. If Thug Rose went to decision, I probably would have gone more 30-27 with some of these fights. Then we get to Tony Ferguson, Benil Darush. This was so damn good. Started off solid opening round. Darush got a double-leg takedown, controlled the whole time at this point. I give him 10-9. Then it was more of a 10-8 because, again, he dominated, had a really good heel hook, and Tony got out of it, but he looked like probably a couple more seconds in that hold, he would have tapped out. Ferguson's leg was wrecked, and no doubter, this was unanimous decision, 30-27. As a co-main event fight, this was one of the better ones I've seen this year. Obviously, Michael Chandler's co-main heading into Poirier McGregor 2 was a far superior one. We'll talk about Michael Chandler in a minute. But overall, it felt like Tony Ferguson was outclassed. I think it's time for him to hang it up. And his leg was completely scuffed towards the end of that match, especially after that heel hook. And I'm surprised that he stuck around that much. And it was, again, 30-27 on my card, and everybody was going more 30-27 there. In fact, he should have probably gotten less when you think about it, but really good Darush finish just Again, really good stuff here, and was a lot more just one-sided. 
Then we get to the main event, UFC Lightweight Championship, Michael Chandler, Charles Oliveira. In terms of just straight-up fight, this was one of my favorite fights of the year so far. Largely because of the fact you had it be so hard to tell who's going to come away with the win. Michael Chandler won the fight, won the first round 10-9 in my card, had in my scoring card. He it was a tough round to call, by the way, because you had Chandler, you know, he was in a guillotine. He got a guillotine in on Oliver early on, but then Oliver took over the back. Then he picked him up, tried then Chandler picked him up, tried to get a flat back bump to try and get him off. That didn't work. Chandler finally gets up. He's explosive, starts just wailing on him. Looks like the match could have been called. Amazing ref didn't call it, but then the match, the first round ended. And then you have Oliveira within seconds of the second round, just comes out the gate, knocks him the hell out. He was absolutely working for that $75,000 bonus. Really good stuff here from these two. And overall, a really solid UFC 262 card. I had my druthers about the fact that you didn't have Poirier in this. But I think this was the right way to go about it. Because now you have two guys that probably, when you think about it, aren't, you know, a huge fan. And not like, aren't a huge fan of, you know, Michael Chandler. But Oliveira is a guy that you never thought was actually going to be there in that conversation. And I'm, I love it. I absolutely love this. I can't wait to see what's going to happen at Poirier McGregor 3 because whoever wins that fight, I think, is going to be next in line to face Oliveira, I think that gives a more of a chance for your boy, Dustin Poirier, to win another UFC lightweight championship. Really good stuff all the way around. And that's going to about do it for the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, if you're not already, to all the great podcast gimmicks that we're on. Also, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's currently the only place where you can leave a review. Make sure you leave a five-star review. And if you do, I guarantee you we're going to go ahead and mention that on the podcast. we got a couple of five stars. One didn't leave an actual written one. Write down a review. That way we know who you are, and we'll shout you out on the podcast. And, of course, keep listening. Enjoy all things pro wrestling. We'll be back next week. <laughs>